When I grew up, there were two television programs that I loved to see. One was called The Fugitive. Any of you like that one? But the other one, my absolute favorite, was Mission Impossible. I, I don't know, it was so good. It, was, it aired from 1966 to 1973. And then, of course, it was picked up as a spy movie with Tom Cruise. Um, many, and now they're up to their, what, their seventh one now is coming out next year. Tom Cruise, of course, um, is uh, the impossible mission force agent, Ethan Hunt. And I remember how every episode began. There would be this leader of the IMF getting an assignment from a hidden tape recorder. If you know what a tape recorder is, by the way. <laughs> and an envelope, if you know what an envelope is, of photos. If you know what a photo is, by the way, because everything's electronic these days. But the, it would explain the, the, the mission, and then it would always end with these words. Your mission should you choose to accept it, and then, of course, the listener is reminded, as always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions, and then the tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck. And then the episode would begin. Of course, remember, the smoke would come and the tape would burn up in front of you. And then I just loved the show. The missions were, were often bizarre, and they were seemingly impossible. They were dangerous, but they were important. Something very important of between good and evil was involved. It involved intricate planning, perfect timing, bravery, cunning, uh, more than a little bit of luck. And if the mission succeeded, some great evil would be averted. And uh, obviously, this theme is a theme that resonates with human beings because Otherwise, it would not have been a television series that went so long and now a movie series that has made so, so much money. There's something about mystery and, uh, and mystery uh, shows like this that we, we just love as people. But we're going to look today at a mystery that is far, far more significant and really impossible than anything that uh, Peter Graves or Tom Cruise ever faced. And this is a true-to-life mystery that would have resulted in incredible death if it had not turned out as it did. And because it did, it turned out to be something very significant for all human history, as we're going to find out in the next couple of weeks. So if you have your Bibles with you today, turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. And I entitled this message, Mission M. Possible and I am, of course, stands for incredible miracle. That's what I am stands for. Mission, incredible miracle, possible. Because we're going to see a passage that is stunning today. Now, in Daniel chapter 1, last week, we saw Daniel exercising his godliness and his street smarts. But today in chapter 2, we're going to see Daniel uh, in a totally different kind of wisdom. Wisdom that no human being has, wisdom that comes from God alone. And so, if you have a Bible, it's going to begin with the text that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has a dream that troubles him. Now, um, dreams and mysteries are um, something that we, we, we enjoy. 
I listen to mysteries all the time. I'm uh, almost addicted to them. I love them. I love them in movies, but I particularly like them in audiobooks. And now we're going to see a mystery that is deeply troubling to a very, very important person. King Nebuchadnezzar, as you know, is the king of the Babylonian Empire. In world history, he's one of the greatest leaders who's ever lived on the planet. His empire is one of the greatest empires that has ever existed in human history. So this is a very, very important person and a very, very important event that took place in history. And we know when it took place because it is dated in the first few verses. Here's how the passage of Scripture begins. In the second year of his reign, well, we know what that is because he began his reign as the king of Babylon in the year 604. So obviously, this has got to be the year 603 B.C. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. And by the way, William Shakespeare has that famous line, remember? Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. Here's the man who's wearing the crown, and he doesn't sleep very well at all because of the weight of the responsibilities he has as king. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Now, if you were a political leader, even, let's say, a mayor of a town, or you're a leader of anything, and you have a dream, it probably is not very significant to you. Maybe it scares you a little bit. Maybe it causes you not to sleep very well. Maybe it makes your life more pleasant. Who knows? But for the, for the most part, we don't put a lot of stock in our dreams today. But that is not the case of people in the ancient world. And by the way, that is not the case about most people in the world today. The majority of people in the world today are not Americans. We are a very small slice of the people in the world. The majority of people who are alive in the world today more than 3.5 billion of them believe that dreams are highly significant. But it was even more so back in 603 BC. Because in that time, it was believed among the Babylonian people and ancient people believed that dreams are of supernatural origin. They come from God or the gods. And especially if you're a leader your dreams are given by the gods to you to help you understand what you should do and the decisions you should make. They believe that very, very strongly. And how would you decide what decisions you should make? Well, they believe that you can sometimes see the form in the formation of the skies, the stars, you might get insight into the future. Some of them that believed that if if in your realm there were bizarre births, like a cow that had two heads, that was considered very significant. Um, the shape of an animal's liver was considered very, very significant. And especially the dreams that you had 
were given by the gods to help you as a leader decide how you should rule your people and what the future holds. So, for example, if you were a king and you were going to go into battle, you'd want to know in advance if you're going to win the battle and how you should conduct the war. And they had people around them who were trained in the art of interpreting dreams, understanding the skies, reading animal livers, and many other things. This was a very, very common practice. And so one night, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had a series of dreams. And of course, since he's the king, and he believed that his, kings were, his uh, dreams were significant, he called in his experts. These are very highly trained people who were political consultants, trend spotters, religious gurus of the day, astrologists, diviners. He called them in and he gave them this responsibility that they were supposed to interpret his dream. But it's going to be more than that, as we'll see. Now, in Nebuchadnezzar's day, diviners, that was the name of the word, a diviner was someone who was to try to figure out what the gods had decided and then communicate that message to the king. That was a very, very, very important um, part of, of, of a kingdom. So these are some of the most important people in the kingdom were those who were trained in the arts of understanding the gods and transmitting their messages to the king and from the king to the people. Now, you might ask, okay, that sounds like a bunch of hocus-pocus junk that we should not have anything to do with. But let me back up a minute. First of all, what did God say to his people, the Jewish people, with regard to divination and astrology and contacting the dead? What did God say? Let me read it for you. This is the main passage. This is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 to 13. God said, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive you out of those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. God made it very specific that his people should not engage in this kind of activity where you try to look at sheep's livers or, or two-headed cows or look at the stars to try to figure out what the God said. God's going to tell you what he thinks through his prophets. You don't have to go through these other means. But, interestingly in the Bible, God often gave dreams to his people in both the Old and the New Testament. We have many, many examples. Remember Joseph? Joseph had dreams, and he tells his brothers, he was a little bit dumb about this one, but he tells his brothers, I saw a dream that I think one day you guys are going to bow down to me. I mean, that would really go over big in your family. 
And then, of course, Joseph, as he's in prison, remember, the cupbearer and the baker said, hey, we had dreams. And Joseph said, let me tell you what those dreams mean. And of course, Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. And, uh, and, and King Saul, King Saul sought God, and, but God did not give him dreams. So what King Saul did is he went to a medium, someone who consulted the dead to try to figure out what did the God, what did God want, which of course turned out very badly for him. Remember, King Solomon had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Daniel had dreams. The prophet Joel said, one day your young, your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Joel prophesied that. And then remember in the New Testament, early on, Joseph was given a dream in which God told him that he was to take Mary as his wife, even though they were not married, because the child inside of Mary had been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, Joseph, um, God gave dreams to the Magi, telling them, warning them not to go back to Jerusalem because Herod is trying to kill the kids in Bethlehem. And then God gave dreams to Joseph, telling him to get out of town fast and escape to Egypt, and then from Egypt to go back to the, to the promised land. You see, the Bible in Old and New Testament has a number of dreams that are from God. But in the Bible, you also have a number of um, examples of dreams that uh, are not from God and, and warnings, a, a number of warnings about, about dreams. So, so what do you do? What do you do with dreams? Um, if any of you are aware, uh, um, have traveled much in the world, a large number of the people in our world Roughly 25% of the people on earth today have a Muslim background. And if you know anything about um, Muslim people, they're very sensitive to their dreams. And I went online yesterday just to update my facts. There are, they say, up to in the millions, the millions of Muslim people who have had dreams of Jesus and have become Christians. I, what do you do with that? I, um, uh, this is one from a man named Tom Doyle. God is speaking to Muslims all over the Middle East, and he's doing it through dreams of Jesus. Missiologists tell us that between missiologists, experts on Christian missions, missiologists tell us that between one in two and one in three Muslims have become Christians because of a dream. The Spirit is at work drawing people to himself, and it's all happening while people are sleeping. Millions, this is another person, this is Baxter Dimitri. Millions of Muslims around the world have had dreams of Jesus and converted to Christianity in recent years. And here's a published study of 750 former Muslims um, that most of them came to Christ through dreams. This is a magazine called Mission Frontiers has reported that out of 600 Muslim converts, 25% experienced a dream that led to their conversion. What do you do with this? I don't know. It seems like it's extremely common. There are people all over our world today, today, who are having dreams, not of Muhammad, but of Jesus. And guess what in many of these uh, dreams Jesus is doing? He's quoting the Bible to them. That's one of the common threads in this. Now, if you take that on the one hand, and on the other hand, in the Bible, it talks a number of places about false dreams. 
This is Deuteronomy 13. If one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder spoken of takes place, and the prophet tells us, let us follow other gods. So here we have a section, a, a passage of Scripture where Moses says, if a person comes along and says, I have a dream from God, and they say, I know you people don't believe me, so poof, an elephant appears. Now do you believe me? And what would almost every one of us say? We'd say, well, yeah. God says, no. What if the next thing they say is, the true, let's follow other gods. No, those dreams and that miracle are false. The standard is not the miracle or the dream. It is the word of God. Don't be misled by dreams. This is Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 25 and following. These false prophets prophesy in my name, and they say, I had a dream, I had a dream. But their prophecies are simply delusions of their own minds. They steal from one another words, supposedly from me. So here are false dreams. This is Jeremiah chapter 27. Do not listen to your false prophets, your diviners, your interpreters of dreams, your mediums, or your sorcerers. So this kind of activity was common now among the Jewish people. And God says, don't do it. This is Zechariah chapter 10, verse 2. The idols speak deceitfully. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep, oppressed for the lack of a shepherd. In our history as a world, there are people whose dreams and visions have started large religions. Muhammad being one with Islam, Joseph Smith with Mormonism, Baha'u'llah with Baha'i, and a host of others who have started whole religions based on dreams and visions. So what do we do with this? Here's a man whose name is Darren Carlson. I liked what he said about dreams. This summarizes it. The massive and mounting evidence of dreams of Jesus among Muslims are compelling. But where the Spirit moves, Satan distorts and distracts. As I have pondered the legitimacy of these dreams, I have been drawn to passages like Matthew 12, 22-36, where the validity of Jesus' own ministry was questioned. Remember, Jesus is casting out demons. And the question arises, how is he doing this? And the Pharisees' answer is, he's doing it through the power of Beelzebub, Satan. And Jesus probably scratched his head and said, oh, so Satan's destroying his own people, his own messengers? That's absurd. And so he goes on, would Satan cast out Satan? No. Would he give dreams filled with scripture pointing to Jesus that ultimately lead to conversion and purity? I doubt it. The Spirit is still on the move, saving his people from among the nations. Of course, Satan tries to attack and muddle what is real. But this should cause us to be discerning, not dismissive. Be careful. One of my, the passages that I think of all the time with regard to these supernatural phenomena is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 
It says this in verse 19 to 22. Do not put out the Holy Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good and avoid every kind of evil. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. But now he is going to do something really, really crazy. Verse 4. Then the astrologers answered the king. Oh, may the king live forever. They often said that's a bunch of flattery, garbage, but they did it. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king applied to the astrologers. This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. So now um, the king says, okay. Well, they, they begin, the astrologers begin to say, oh, tell us your dream and we'll go to our books, our textbooks. We've been trained in the art of interpreting dreams and uh, we'll tell you what it means. The king says, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. I forgot my dream. But I know it's important because I can't sleep. And so I, you have to tell me what my dream was and then interpret it. And if you can't, I'm going to kill you and your families. And if you do, you'll be rewarded richly. So... And by the way, something you need to know, from the first, from verse 4 until the 7th chapter, the language of the Bible changes from Hebrew. This is extremely important. The Bible was originally written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek in the New Testament, and Aramaic. This is the only section in the Bible that's written in Aramaic. Aramaic is to that society what English is to our society. English is the language of commerce throughout the world. Some years past, it was French, lingua franca. In Jesus' day, the language of the world was Greek. But in Daniel's day, the, 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 the language of the world was Aramaic. And so this section that we're in now, verse 4, in chapter 2 to verse to chapter 7 is written in Aramaic, which means it is particularly designed for, aimed toward not Jewish people, but Gentiles. This is for us. God is making a point. This was written originally in Aramaic. So God is trying to communicate to Nebuchadnezzar, who's a Gentile, as well as to all of us as Gentiles. Of course, the Jewish people are included as well, but this is not written in Hebrew. So, of course, um, the, uh, the wise guys, um, when they hear this, they go, that's crazy. And so let's see what they say next. Verse 7. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants a dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I'm certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there's only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. And by the way, these are people who purportedly have contact with the gods. 
So Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, say, you people tell me that you know the gods? Okay, let's see if you really do. Or is this a bunch of bunk? Is your whole profession a bunch of garbage? Or do you really understand the gods? Tell me my dream and then interpret it as well. Well, he's getting madder and madder, and they're getting more and more frightened. And so in verse uh, 10, the, the astrologers answered the king, there's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. Now, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Whoa. The wise men say, wait a minute, king. There's no one in the world who can do this. This is the first true statement they've made. It says, your, your request is humanly impossible. It is historically unique. It is way above our pay grade. There's no one on earth who can do what you have asked of us. They, of course, think that this is going to placate the king, but it doesn't. He just gets more angry. And, of course, he's the king. He can do whatever he wants. So why is he such a hardhead on this matter? Well, first of all, he's probably such a hardhead because he believes deeply that dreams are important. And not only are dreams important, they're doubly important when the dream comes to a king because that dream is supposed to help him understand how to rule his realm. So it's very significant. And perhaps he, first of all, he would have inherited from his father, the king, all these wise guys. And maybe he thinks a, a bunch, some of them are a bunch of frauds. And he wants to test them to see if they're true or not. And maybe he wants to get rid of some of them. Who knows? Maybe he wondered if this wise man's work was a bunch of bogus garbage. Because we know, even from our own culture, that sometimes the advice given to a leader is bogus. How do we know that? Well, last year, I think somebody must have told our president that we have a well-trained group of soldiers loyal to America in Afghanistan. And when we pull out, they just love us so much. Somebody gave very bad counsel. We know that. That we know. That's a fact. Somebody did that. Who? We don't know. They, they acted because I'm sure the president received counsel. He didn't make that up by himself. But they were wrong. They were dead wrong. They were dead. I mean, big time dead wrong. Many people died because of counsel. So kings many times wonder, or, or leaders, you know, these people have their doctorate degrees, but do they really know what they're talking about? Maybe the king's just trying to test them. But the king wonders, is their system, does it actually work? Nebuchadnezzar's demand is inhuman, it's unprecedented, it's supernatural, it's unearthly, it's impossible. You see, mystery, things we don't have answers for, are common. For example, what's called the problem of pain. It's a problem that people have wrestled with for all of human history. It's, of course, very prominent in the Bible, in the book of Job. If God is all good and all powerful, why is there evil? 
If he was all good, he wouldn't allow it. If he was all power, powerful, he would stop it, wouldn't he? It's a problem. We can't, we can't solve it. Or, or, or the origin of life. Where, where does life come from? And so our, a big bang and billions of years is the best we can come up with. Or the complexity of the cell and the genetic code. Or the enormity of the cosmos. Or even so basic as, what is light? We don't know. Is light a wave or is it a particle or is it both? It's both. Um, we, we, we don't even know. Um, th- there's so many mysteries that we have. That why does a placebo effect work? Um, and we could go on and on and on. In real life on planet Earth, mystery abounds. Now, oftentimes we find that human intelligence and will, wisdom are utterly insufficient. And here was one of the cases. These people who were trained in interpreting dreams knew how to interpret dreams, or at least they thought they did. At least they were educated in that. But they could not get inside a person's mind. But Jesus could. There was somebody on this planet who could get inside people's minds. He knew what they were thinking. It was our Lord Jesus Christ. Time after time, he did not respond to people's questions. He responded to the motive that was behind their question because he could read their mind. Remember the first time he met Nathaniel? He's talking to Nathaniel, and they tell Nathaniel, hey, we met this guy who's the Messiah, and he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel, who's an honest soul, says, hey, nothing good's ever come out of Nazareth. Come on. And then he meets Jesus, and Jesus says, you know, I saw you this morning sitting under that fig tree. Well, the fig tree was the place where Jewish people got alone by themselves and had their daily devotions, if you will. And Nathaniel knows Jesus was not there. He goes, how could you see me? You weren't there. A a, a mystery. Jesus Jesus understood the mysteries of of, of fishing. (laughs) He could pull money out of fish's mouths. He knew where he could get a big catch of fish. Boy, bring them here to this area. This big fishing area around here. And he also knew the mysteries of fishing for men as well as fishing for fish. He, He knew the mysteries of the body, the mysteries of the weather, the mysteries of death, the mysteries of physics. He demonstrated the mystery of the future. He knew all these mysteries, unlike any of the rest of us. How do we handle mystery? Well, we handle mystery through what God has revealed to us in Scripture, what science has given us in evidence. Hopefully, we should avoid superstition, which is incredibly common among our world. Have any of you seen the movie Expelled? Any of you seen the movie Expelled? By Ben Stein, you didn't see it? A Jewish man, but in the movie, he interviews one of the world's most famous atheists. And he basically asks us, well, where does life come from? And the world's most famous atheist said, I think it's aliens. <laughs> it's stupid. I mean, it's just stupid. But, you know, when you, when you throw away God, you, you have to come up with some crazy answers sometimes, and those are not sufficient. When we deal with mystery, all we've got is maybe prayer, trusting God. And by the way, First Baptist Church is entering a time of mystery. You're in the process of selecting a new pastor. You don't know what's going on in a person's mind. No one does. You don't know what goes on in a person's heart. We hardly know about anyone's background. When you approach mystery, we need God's help. And one of the beauties of being a Christian is we have God's help and God's Holy Spirit. And so Daniel now says that, or the, 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 the wise guys tell the king, 
we, we can't solve this. <laughs> That's it. That's the end. If it wasn't for Daniel. Look at verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So what did Daniel do? First of all, Daniel interacted with the man who was responsible to kill him in a respectful manner again. And then Daniel stuck out his neck hugely. He said, I will tell the king what he dreamed. What? That's a crazy, I guess it's the only way to save his neck. He stuck his neck out so far. He said, I will tell the king what he dreamed. And then what does he do? He goes home and calls his comrades together and prays and pleads for God's mercy. Wow, if you've ever seen powerful prayer, there it is. Because if God does not answer, he's dead. His friends are dead. And all of the wise men of Babylon are dead. Prayer is pretty important. One of the movies I like, I've seen it once, and I don't ever want to see it again because it's too bloody, is called Hacksaw Ridge. You ever seen Hacksaw Ridge? Um, woo. It tells the story of a man, um, Desmond Doss, who went into World War II as a medic because, because of his Christian convictions, he would not carry a gun. He would save lives, but he would not take lives. And it shows him in this incredible battle that took place in the Pacific at a place called Hacksaw Ridge, how this man, Doss, went back and saved 75 people's lives. Where everyone else was hunkered down, he went back 70 and brought 75 people, saved their lives, all the while praying, God, just give me one more. Give me one more. Well, he, of course, when he first went in, he was horribly mistreated and ridiculed as a chicken because he wouldn't carry a gun. And by the end of the movie, remember my favorite scene. This my favorite scene is they're about ready. The commander of this group, this, this group says, let's go and take this hill. And all of the soldiers say, no, we don't listen to you because Doss is still praying. When he finishes praying, we move. We don't listen to officers. We now are based on what he does when he prays. And Desmond Doss, the only non-combatant in American history who received the Medal of Honor from President Truman, the only one. Prayer. Here's a powerful man of prayer. They, they, this squad says, we do not do anything until Desmond is done praying. Then we move. Wow. Well, here, Daniel and his buddies pray. And while they pray, God gives an answer. Look at verse 19. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Now, if I was Daniel, 
The next line would be, and I jumped up out of bed, ran to Arioch, said, give me to the king. I want to tell him what I realized. But that's not what Daniel did. What does he do? Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. So, oh, the most important thing is not going to the king. The most important thing is to give thanks to God. Look at his praise. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells within him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Wow. Instead of rushing impulsively to the king, Daniel stopped to worship God. What was Daniel's approach to mystery? First thing, it says he exercised restraint. He acted with wisdom and tact. He kept his emotions under control. And then, remember, he sought understanding. He said, tell me, Ariok, what's, what's in the king's brain? Is he crazy? What's he thinking? And then he demonstrated respect. And then he took some time. He consulted his comrades, his trusted friends. He devoted himself to prayer. He listened for God's voice. And when he heard it, he praised God for his revelation. That's what he did. And of course, one of the principles of life is if we respond positively to the light God gives us, how does he reward us? He gives us more light. That's what he typically does. And so now Daniel makes the final part of this chapter, of this portion, he goes into the king. Here's what happens. Verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and he said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. So Daniel takes the initiative, and the first thing on his mind is he wants to protect the innocent. And then he makes a bold promise. He says, I will tell the king what he's asked for. And then Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. That's not what the king wanted, by the way. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. Your wise men are correct. No human being can do what you've asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in the bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, Your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Next week, we're going to find out what that dream is all about. 
But what did Daniel do? Daniel agreed with the wise men that no human being can read the dreams of another person. And he said, only God can do that. Daniel disavowed having superior wisdom, even though he was the smartest person in the class. He said, I'm, I'm, it's not because I am smarter, but it's because God is better. God is good. There is a true God who does do this. So Daniel highlights God's goodness. Daniel's witness to Nebuchadnezzar has a few things that we should think about. I don't know if you've heard this, but someone said this. If any Christian can ever talk about hell without tears, they have no business talking about it. We don't talk about bad things without tears because we believe in the scriptures. Our God is not willing that anyone should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's his heart. He would like to fill heaven with all of us. And when Jesus died on the cross, he made a way for every one of us to go to heaven based not on our good lives, our good deeds, our religiosity, our money, no anything, based on our faith in what Jesus has done for us. How readily, how unapologetically do we identify ourselves with the true and the living God or with the Lord Jesus Christ? Daniel didn't come across as a know-it-all or a goody two-shoes or a holier-than-thou. His highlight was not his goodness, but God's goodness. He kept the focus not on himself, but he kept pushing the focus on God. That's what he did. Well, so what? What does this mean for us as we leave this morning? What does it mean for us? First of all, the king was highly suspicious of his spiritual advisors. He should have been, because they're frauds. And so should we, because there are a lot of frauds out there. How do I know? Jesus, Paul, Peter, and John all highlight the fact that there, our world is full of spiritual frauds. And we talked about, uh, we sang about this morning about he's coming again. And our Lord Jesus Christ and each of these people says, as time marches on, the number of frauds is going to increase. And so every one of them says, you must be discerning. How do we be discerning? How do we test truths? How, how do we do that? Well, the only absolute truth we have is Holy Scripture. It seems to me that, that God has given us three, many good helps, but here are three of them. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. All should work, move us toward, toward, towards God's truth. Um, we must be careful of spiritual frauds. We must be people who, who learn to listen to the voice, the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. We, we must be people who understand that a lot of life is mystery and we approach mystery with humility and prayer. That's how we approach it because we don't know the future. There are many things we cannot figure out as hard as we try, no matter how scientifically brilliant we are. We don't understand. But what we do know is that God is faithful and he does want to give us wisdom. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask of me. I give liberally. He says, Jesus said, if, you, if your children ask you for good gifts, aren't you a thrill to give them good gifts when they ask you? The Father in heaven is thrilled to give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him. That's what God loves to do. It's his pleasure. Why? 
Because there is a God who has the whole world in his hands. And he is actively at work right now, drawing all things to conclusion. When it will be, we don't know. But this much we do know, Jesus is coming again. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are stunned at what you've done and are doing. What you did with Daniel is amazing. You changed the world through this man. And even in our little lives, you can change a lot. For that, we thank you. We recognize who we are. We're just simple people, servants of yours. But through your great, through us and your incredibly great power, may you grant us wisdom and humility and courage and the ability even to stand before kings and represent Jesus well. To that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.